welcome to Writers Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered lands of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation. My name is Neil Wilson. I'm a co-founder of the Ottawa International Writers Festival and the Republic of Childhood, our programming for children and youth. And I'm hosting a series of six podcasts which explore education in the face of environmental crisis, which is the tagline of the book, Teaching in the Anthropocene, a pan-Canadian collection of 43 short essays by leading educators and researchers, edited by Alicia Farrell, Candy Jones, Michelle Lamb, with illustrations and copy editing by Grace Stone. It is published by Canadian scholars and was released on July 29th, 2022. As the editors write in the introduction, we feel compelled to ask if the climate crisis expands the ethical obligations of teachers to include ensuring livable lives for children yet to come. If not, what can it possibly mean to teach in a world that is prepared to go on without us? It is becoming increasingly apparent that technocratic frameworks and conventional teaching methods are insufficient in the face of climate change dilemmas that are complex, integrative, multi-perspectival, and effectively charged. Time is of the essence, and young people feel it. Fueled by concerns for their future and angered by the inaction of adults, students across the globe continue to walk out of school on Fridays to participate in climate strikes. Yet, in the field of education, we have yet to respond in any significant way to the danger the climate crisis poses to the young people we teach. In our fifth in the series, I spoke with Michelle Lamb, one of the editors. She's the director of the Centre for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies. And Michelle spoke about her research and experiences with climate refugees and the role of education in promoting inclusivity and unlearning stereotypes and our own complicity in benefiting from a system that is unjust. In our final podcast in this series, I am speaking with Jenna Lee Klutz, an educator activist and community organizer. Jenna Lee is passionate about climate and ecological justice. She brings this passion into her work at the University of British Columbia, where she researches social movements for climate and environmental justice. The learning that takes place in and through social action as well as education for sustainability more broadly. At the centre of her work is the recognition that she lives as a settler on lands that are traditional, unceded territory of First Nations, and thus much of her research and writing focuses on decolonizing climate action. Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio, Jenna Lee. Oh, thank you, Neil. It's um, so great to be here. In British Columbia, you write the climate justice movement, and more specifically, opposition to the fossil fuel industry is led by Indigenous communities. In your experience with young people, how has this knowledge shaped their activism? Yeah, so over here on the West Coast, um, and you know, I currently kind of live and write and research on the lands of the Skohomish, the Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh. Um, I am a, you know, a, as you said in your introduction, I'm an uninvited guest here. Um, and so all of this work, I think, just before getting started, I'd like to preface by saying, you know, um, 
this whole chapter and this whole project, you know, comes from this recognition of trying to to better understand what it means to be an uninvited guest here um, and take up sort of responsibility and work towards decolonization. Um, and we're really lucky, you know, over here on the West Coast, the climate justice movement um, and really specifically the opposition to the fossil fuel industry um, is led by indigenous communities. I mean, we have, you know, for example, the Tsleil-Waututh, the Squamish, the Sequatmuk um, that are putting up sort of fierce opposition to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Um, and then further north, the Wet'suwet'en are at the center um, of the resistance to the Coastal Gas Link Project. Um, and what's interesting in the climate movement, you know, um, is that these communities are, you know, arguing against these projects um, because they will have sort of disastrous implications for the earth and for the climate. But really, more fundamentally, um, they violate indigenous rights and sovereignty. Um, and, you know, these projects are being built on unceded land that's never been surrendered um, and, and isn't treaty land. Um, so it's, it's really interesting when youth begin organizing with indigenous communities, um, which we kind of saw kind of in the last few years as youth are, are taking to the streets and joining these movements, they really see, um, I think they really kind of see their own justice claims. Um, so whether arguing for maybe their future and intergenerational justice um, or other sort of climate and racial justice claims, they see those in relation to the claims of others. Um, and I think that that creates sort of this incredibly um, rich opportunity for learning. Um, yeah, so students are showing up to rallies and protests. You know, they're holding their cardboard sign saying, protect my future. Um, but in doing so, they're standing next to indigenous leaders that are calling to sort of end climate colonization and, you know, joining in chants about no consent, no pipelines. And so sort of this collective resistance really opens up opportunities for youth to learn um, about the historic and the continuance of colonization. Um, yeah, so just, you know, I guess that's a long-winded answer, but back to your question, it deeply, I think, is beginning to shape youth activism. Um, you know, I, I was having a conversation with one young activist um, specifically about the student strikes, and obviously I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he talked about how, you know, this whole climate strike thing um, really got in the news and sort of gained momentum because of, you know, because of Greta Thunberg and some other really just vocal um, student leadership, you know, making, you know, students see they really need to stand up and do something. Um, but in the context of Canada, you know, youth take to the streets and there's this realization that, you know, Indigenous people have long been resisting colonization and resource extraction. Um, they've been fighting the fossil fuel industry for a very long time. And, you know, this young activist said to me, we, we really have to realize we didn't start this fight, right? We have to realize that, you know, people have been doing this work um, before us for a very long time. Um, and sort of, 
take the position or the mindset that really we're just joining into a movement. Um, and it's our job to sort of kind of support these indigenous communities any way that we can. I, I love the way you frame uh, colonization, uh, not as an event that happened uh, hundreds of years ago, but a structure of power that continues today in order to maintain, you know, the settler access that you're talking about to the land and resources and uh, that support our capitalist system. How are the kids responding to this and how do they learn this? Are they learning it in the classroom or are they learning it, uh, you know, by being activists? You know, I, I, I think it's being learned in some classrooms for sure, um, you know, and maybe not nearly enough. Um, you know, these land-based battles against the fossil fuel industry, these fights against pipelines, these for fights to protect forests, um, are really prime examples of sort of standing up to continued colonization. And I think they just really make for very powerful lessons um, when activists get involved and youth can actually see sort of colonization playing out firsthand, right? So it's a really just rich opportunity for learning. Um, you know, we, you know, like you said, we think about colonization, we think about sort of this past project of erasure and, and the physical and cultural genocide um, we think about people being removed from land. We think about treaty processes or residential schools. Um, but we we don't really think about the ways in which colonization is really still ongoing in Canada. Um, you know, uh, settler colonial relationships are really characterized by power structures, you know, that continue to work to, you know, erode indigenous lands and sovereignties, um, indigenous ways of life and, and to treat the earth as little more than a resource, right? And so this resource extraction is really a prime example of that. Um, I mean, when you try to force a pipeline through unceded indigenous territory, you kind of place this front and center. Um, so to me, it's really interesting to watch, well, any activist or organizer get involved, but especially young people, um, who really are kind of seeing that firsthand um, and, and maybe for the first time and kind of can, learning that there's a deeper history there. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think it's something we can't quite learn fully in the classroom, right? We have to, to be a part of it, to see it happen and, and, and to be taking action to really um, kind of make that real. You, you talk about the whole notion of working alongside Indigenous leadership uh, in this collective resistance. Um, the young people, the youth, are, see their own experiences and perspectives in relation to others, and this provides a more critical understanding of their own assumptions and beliefs. So it's, it's like they're doing something for the outer world, but they're also changing their own psychology and their own um, limited views of of what it means to be settlers. Yeah, I, I mean, I think absolutely. I think when you, you know, it's an embodied experience of learning, right? So when you get involved, um, you know, youth are getting involved and they're just, 
there's, um, in my research, you kind of, there's been all sorts of sort of examples of really deep learning, shifting perspectives, um, and the way we relate to others. Um, you know, I, I was speaking to one young activist and it, it just, in my mind, is a great example of this sort of perspective shift or learning. Um, and he was telling me a story. Um, he participates in kind of the movement against the Trans Mountain Pipeline and had been spending a lot of time um, listening to uh, Suela Tooth leadership. Um, and he started to recognize the differences really in you know, our Western colonial ways of thinking about the earth. Um, and then the ways of thinking, um, you know, that indigenous leadership brings to the table and how those sort of stand in very stark contrast, um, which it, to me, this, this young activist just kind of coming to these realizations um, about the difference in sort of Western indigenous ways of thinking um, was just so um, encouraging, I guess, and, and, you know, very impressive to me. I was quite taken with your statement uh, that through participating in the climate justice movement and organizing uh, collective action, these young activists are beginning to recognize that planetary health is tied to the platforms of politicians and the pockets of fossil fuel executives. And certainly we saw that in a very shocking and shameful way at the recent uh, COP27 uh, meetings. Yeah, certainly. Actually, that, you know, kind of rereading this or rehearing those words that I wrote, um, that's the first thing that pops into mind, right? This this COP that just wrapped up, um, you know, and our, our political leaders sort of fighting over wording um, and failing to really agree on sort of a meaningful plan to phase out fossil fuels. Um, it didn't help that there were more than 600 people, you know, tied to the oil and gas industry um, that were there to, to lobby and protect their interests. Um, you know, it, it's frustrating. I get why youth are frustrated. You know, the inaction, um, the preference for sort of protecting corporate wealth and political power um, rather than creating a climate safe future, it's just incredibly frustrating um, for youth and, and for all of us, right? Um, you know, especially I think about young people and their futures are really kind of threatened by these social and economic systems that they didn't create. Um, and it's being all decided um, within political systems that they can't fully participate in yet. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of youth are stepping up, they're getting involved in climate justice initiatives. Um, they're taking to the streets, um, and, and leading climate action and pressuring politicians and doing really everything they can. But it's, it's hard to watch when you talk to youth act activists, you know, they're kind of realizing and learning the limitations of our current political and economic systems. Um, that sort of require we continue exploiting the earth. Um, you know, they're getting frustrated, you know, that people in power, the way our systems work, people in power can keep kind of playing politics with their futures. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm incredibly frustrated. I think that, you know, youth even more so have reason to be, right? Um, it seems that 
the system could change if more young people could vote. And maybe that's where the resistance is coming in. We see it, you know, certainly in, in many Western countries now, there is this kind of very reactionary right-wing move to hang on to the status quo at all costs. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I honestly, I think, you know, some of, some of the youth that I work with, I mean, they're just far beyond me even in what they understand and the way they're working on things. And, um, you know, I, they, the future is bright, you know, it, it, when they get the power to actually make change that they want to make, I think, you know, it's, it's encouraging. Um, but yeah, frustrating the nonetheless and in the kind of political stalemates and um, kind of what they're wading through to make change, for sure. You, you write to becoming educators of activists. If we begin to unsettle ourselves, we no longer simply teach towards solutions, but instead teach toward the social structures and systems of exploitation and oppression that have brought us to the point of climate crisis, rather than a focus on creating problem solvers who are trained to think up sustainable solutions, our priority might instead become to first educate problem makers, students equipped to unsettle the colonial capitalist status quo. That's something I'm sure many people <laughs> you know, in in the classrooms, the teachers, the principals might find a little revolutionary, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and rightly so, right? It's it's quite the, quite the statement, but, you know, what we're doing is not working, right? Um, I think ultimately, you know, as students are recognizing the urgency of the crisis, um, they're taking to the streets to become activists. We have to step up and follow their lead. We have to step up and support them. You know, I think that's our job as educators. Um, and I think it, this actually just require us, requires us to, in some ways, become troublemakers ourselves, right? Um, to learn to kind of take a more careful, um, sort of critical and honest look um, at these, you know, the underlying assumptions um, that are determining what we teach and how we teach it. Um, and I, I, I realize this is controversial. Um, you know, systems of power have provided privilege and comfort and wealth for many of us. Um, and so the idea of teaching historical and tenured colonialism, um, confronting capitalism in the classroom can really kind of create um, unease or discomfort, right? Um, we really try to avoid this sort of thing in the classroom to, to make ourselves uncomfortable or to unsettle our students. But if we're honest with ourselves, right, colonial history is unsettling. It shouldn't be comfortable. Um, the current reality of the climate and ecological crisis is deeply unsettling. Um, you know, the future that our students are facing is incredibly unsettling. And I, I don't think we can shy away from it. Um, 
Yeah. So, so as, as kind of crazy as that sounds, if we begin to unsettle ourselves as educators, unsettle our classrooms, I, I think we really have to teach toward um, understanding the social structures and systems of exploitation and oppression that have really brought us to this point of, of climate crisis. And maybe that means, you know, instead of just always giving answers, you know, technological fixes, renewable energy, um, we instead, you know, teach our students to ask questions, make sure they're asking the right questions, um, not just, you know, turning out problem solvers, but really, as, as controversial as it sounds, creating troublemakers. You know, the, the students need to be able to disrupt our unhealthy systems. And yeah, as crazy as, as I know that it sounds to most, we've got to unsettle um, and disrupt if we want to be able to teach sort of beyond just sustaining the systems that we already have in place. Right. Because, I mean, given the current crisis, these systems aren't they're not working out so well for us. We've got we've got to shake things up a bit. Do you think the time is coming ripe for, you know, I don't know, general strikes or, or uh, you know, a revolution led by the people who are going to suffer the most and who have the most to lose, namely our children and youth and certainly the developing world? Is it is it going to have to come to that place if we have 10 or 15 years to really, really take the wind out of the sails of this whole the lobbyists that are running the show? Yeah, I, that's a really good question. Um, honestly, I, th- I think the time is ripe. I think the time is past ripe, right? We are we're in a situation where we've got to make some serious moves. Um, and I I do find you know, see, I'm very encouraged by or see a lot of kind of hope in the way that uh, climate justice movements are coming together and youth are getting involved. Um, you know, there are a lot of of people kind of claiming different types of justice. They have different priorities, but I think we can all get on the same page when, you know, we have a crisis um, that affects all of us. Um, and it, it, it's going to take, you know, the, the student strikes were so powerful. Um, and there's something, you know, really unsettling about seeing young people take to the streets and take it into their own hands um, for a lot of, of those of us who would like to, well, not me included, but others who would really like to see business um, continue as usual, who kind of benefit from the systems we currently have in place. Um, so yeah, I think the time is right for more um, more disruption, you know, more really taking seriously um, um, these movements. And, and as educators realizing that you know, our education, the way we teach and the way we approach our students in the classroom is never neutral, right? Um, whether we're aware of it or not, we are teaching them certain worldviews um, and certain priorities. Um, and I think we really need to take a long, careful, hard look at what we're teaching and what learning we might have to do ourselves to make sure 
um, that were sort of providing and preparing students um, kind of for this future they're facing. So the question is, is the school, does the school have to change? Does the whole notion of education uh, have to change? And if not, maybe the work needs to take place really in, in, in another form of organization. And this is where you come in with your activism. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you that, you know, we have some teachers doing really good work and a, and a lot, you know, a majority of teachers are doing really good work. And we put a lot on teachers, right, um, to kind of to um, to do this work in in context when they, you know, they don't have the support they need. They don't have the buy in they need. They're also dealing um, with outside of political pressures um, that affect what goes on in their classrooms. And so, you know, it is, it's teachers, it's also administrators, it's support staff, it's um, parents, it's youth, it's all of us, right? I mean, it's not just on teachers. Um, and and we have to really learn to do this work. And, and I think, you know, based on my own research and experience, the way that happens is just getting out there, right? Like getting out there, getting involved, showing up to support, to support um, the climate protests or rally or the indigenous community um, that's fighting um, for more fundamental rights. And, um, but yeah, it's gonna take all of us. We can't just, definitely can't just put this on teachers. No, and, and you know, generally this, your chapter is, is really, uh, a fine way, I think, to wrap up our series, you know, because it is a call to action. It's controversial. It's revolutionary. And I think it needs to be heard. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me here to talk about it. Um, and I, too, am just, you know, uh, a white settler, new educator learning to do this work myself. And so this conversation has just been really great to kind of explore these ideas um, yeah, so thanks for, for having me be a part of this. Thank you, Jenna Lee. That was my edited conversation with Jenna Lee Klutz and brings us to the end of our six-part series on teaching in the Anthropocene, Education in the Face of Environmental Crises, published by Canadian Scholars. We hope that over the course of the six podcasts, you may have gained some new insights that might reorientate the aims of teaching so that we might imagine or reimagine multiple futures in which children, youth, and families can thrive amid a myriad of challenges related to the Earth's decreasing habitability. My name is Neil Wilson, and thank you for listening to Writers Festival Radio. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.